Hi there, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. I'm Nick Whitney, and this third episode is entitled The Turn of the Tide. Its theme is Europe's emergence in the first couple of centuries of the new millennium from the chaos of the Dark Ages. In his monumental television series Civilization, British art historian Kenneth Clarke suggests that there have been times in the history of mankind when the Earth seems suddenly to have grown warmer or more radioactive. He was talking about what is sometimes called Europe's 12th century Renaissance. Television needs images, so it is unsurprising that Clark should have focused particularly on cathedrals to illustrate his theme. They are indeed amongst the most visible relics and eloquent symbols of that remarkable period of human progress, which followed on the grey millennial dawn, and which was at its most intense in the 1100s. Both as feats of engineering and as construction projects, cathedrals embodied a degree of confidence and ambition not seen in Europe since Roman times. Architecturally and aesthetically, they represented huge strides in human achievement, as the Romanesque style adapted by the Normans, e.g. in Durham, and embodied in the vast monastery at Cluny, gave way to the new Gothic fashion, which was pioneered at Saint-Denis in Paris, and then developed into such wonderful cathedrals as Chartres. Further south, Arab and Byzantine forms influenced splendid creations like St Mark's in Venice, and the richly decorated cathedral and leaning tower at Pisa. Nor was this just about raising ever higher piles to the glory of God. As Clark brings out, sculptures, like the so-called royal statues at the entrance to Chartres, suggest a sensibility perhaps not seen since the ancient Greeks. Humanity, too. The exuberant Gisalbertus, who unusually put his signature on the cathedral at Autun, and did all the decorative work too, produces some gorgeous cameos. On one capital, a severe creator interrogates Cain as to the whereabouts of his brother, and is met with an eloquent shrug. Go round the corner and you are shown a pair of legs sticking out at the top of a bush. But cathedrals were, of course, only one visible and durable example of the unprecedented cultural and economic advances underway. Perhaps the most fundamental development was in the way in which learning, and the life of the mind more generally, exploded. We have already noted the vital role played by Arab Spain as a conduit for rediscovery of much of what the ancient world had thought and learned about mathematics and astronomy and medicine and philosophy. At last there was something other than theology for inquiring minds to engage with. The first university was founded at Bologna in 1088, Paris and Oxford soon followed, with Paris in particular becoming a focus for the study of Aristotle, hotbed, more like, in the eyes of the church, and the ensuing controversies between Bernard of Clairvaux, the founder of the Cistercian monastic order and the most charismatic churchman of the day, and Paris's star academic Peter Abelard, were as gripping as any modern-day celebrity Twitter feud, albeit confined to rather small audiences. Abelard was a highly romantic figure, his name forever linked with that of Eloise, a student with whom he established an inappropriate relationship. 
so inappropriate indeed that her uncle had him castrated. The devastated lovers retired to religious houses and pursued a tragic but celebrated correspondence. For this was also the age which invented romance, notably in the form of the Romain de la Rose, the love ballads associated with the courts of southern France. Troubadours also drew on the complementary genre of uh, chanson de guest, tales of heroic daring-do, such as the Song of Roland, through which the concepts of chivalry and courtly love emerged. Answering this new demand, the basis of Western musical notation was developed at Fécamp in Normandy in the 11th century. So Kenneth Clarke's metaphor of a burst of radioactivity is apt, if not perhaps terribly enlightening. A proper historian would explain the causes of this sudden acceleration of human development. Uh, The best I can do is to try to suggest some contributing conditions. First, the religious impulse. All those cathedrals were built to the glory of God and in pursuit of personal salvation. Pope, bishop and priest wielded huge authority, and so too did the monastic orders, which had done so much to keep the light of civilization burning through the Dark Ages, and which underwent their own explosive expansion in the first centuries of the second millennium. The Mappa Mundi in Hereford Cathedral, which puts Jerusalem in the middle, illustrates the literal centrality of Christianity to the medieval mind. And Jerusalem was, of course, the focus of that other extraordinary joint endeavour of the age, the crusading movement. For good or ill, faith and the urge for redemption have determined much of our European history. So too has money, and the high Middle Ages, we're talking here of roughly the first three centuries of the new millennium, were fuelled by a strong economic growth. Trade was the key, and the first four crusades, though ultimately failing in their avowed objective, resulted in the reopening of the eastern Mediterranean and the eclipse of Byzantium putting eastern commerce in the hands of the Italian maritime republics. Venice and Genoa became substantial cities, as olive oil and cotton and luxury goods, spices, jewels, semi-precious stones, ivory, silk and silkworm eggs flowed across their docks. As their trade spread through Lombardy and then north over the Alps to the Rhineland and on to the new textile manufacturing centres of Bruges and Ghent, Wealth and urbanisation followed. England prospered on the growing demand for wool. Expanding maritime trade, fostered by the Hanseatic League, brought prosperity to ports around the North and Baltic seas. The fairs of Champagne, a sort of free trade zone which became a huge commercial hub, helped spread the growing wealth west into France. The first banking houses appeared. Tuscans led the way to lubricate and prosper from the expanding economy of exchange. A final contributing condition was obviously a modicum of stability and order. Massive construction projects do not get undertaken, trade and manufacturing do not flourish, learning and culture do not thrive, without some degree of social order and peaceful cooperation. Given that the history of the High Middle Ages as a chronology of events we will get on to that in a moment, is an almost unbroken litany of war and conflict, order and stability might seem unlikely characteristics. But these things are relative, 
and by and large society and populations as a whole suffered less from the clashes of emperor and pope, or English and French, than from the repeated barbarian incursions of the previous millennium. The High Middle Ages marked a turning of the tide, when Europe became less the object and more the agent of historical developments. The Mongol invasions aside, quite a big aside admittedly, Europeans were now beginning to do unto others as they had previously been done to, and none did it with more vigour or with a more effective blend of violence and creativity than the Normans. Older listeners may recall a haughty French president called Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, who prided himself on his ancient Norman lineage, and the name certainly tracks back to the 11th century to one Robert Giscard, who established himself as Lord of Much of Southern Italy. President Valéry was less anxious to note that the name means weasel, and was a sobriquet fully earned by a successful adventurer and mercenary who eventually forced the Pope to recognise him as a duke. Fast forward a couple of centuries, and Palermo, capital city of the now Kingdom of Sicily, had become the home of a brilliant Norman-Arab civilization and of Europe's most important royal court. But that is to get ahead of ourselves. The Normans, let us recall, were originally Viking marauders who had installed themselves in northern France and got themselves recognised as a dukedom by the king in Paris in return for the promise to shut the door on any other Norsemen who tried to come after. Their main claim to fame became, of course, the successful invasion of England in 1066 under Duke William. The product was a an Anglo-Norman kingdom, which spent much of the next 400 years contesting control of the western and southern half of France with the Capetian dynasty, that's the heirs of Hugh Capet, in Paris. The conquest showcased Norman strengths, military prowess and ruthlessness. William's harrying of the north of England was a campaign of systematic devastation, allied with administrative efficiency. Doomsday Book, a comprehensive stocktake of the assets and dues of his new conquests, stands in contrast to the frankly lax fashion in which the Holy Roman Emperors recorded and imposed their feudal rights. And, across the land, imposing new cathedrals and castles manifested Norman skills as architects, engineers and masons. Just as important, however, were the Normans' forays into the Mediterranean world from around the turn of the millennium. There was mercenary work to be done in Spain, and though the Arabs might control much of the eastern Mediterranean, they were usually happy to allow Christian pilgrims access to their holy places if the price was right. Such expeditions needed armed escort, and the escorts often found tempting local employment. The Byzantines, for example, had long recognised the qualities of Viking mercenaries. But why work for others when the chance offers to set up on your own account? and when as attractive a location as southern Italy, ineffectively contested between Arabs and Byzantines, is lying open. So, Robert the Weasel established and expanded a domain in the south of Italy, so alarming the papacy that a legation was dispatched to Constantinople in 1054 to test the idea of combined action to cut those Normans down to size. Though under pressure in Italy, Byzantium was in better fettle than it had been for some while, 
having pushed the Arabs of the failing Abbasid Caliphate out of modern-day Turkey, and dealt similarly with Bulgarians on their European flank. They had also been successful in their evangelical efforts in the newly opened Slav lands of Eastern Europe, most conspicuously, as we have seen, in Kiev. So this was really not the moment for the papal delegation to link their proposal of joint action against the Normans with the demand that the Eastern Patriarch and his Church acknowledge the supremacy of the Pope and the Church of Rome. The Patriarch's response was, as diplomats say, robust. The papal delegation then proceeded to a step which could only be termed unhelpful. The excommunication of the Patriarch in a bull laid on the very altar of Santa Sophia. Reciprocal excommunication of the delegates naturally followed, and the whole sorry episode opened up the Great Schism, which has divided Eastern and Western churches ever since even though the mutual anathemas were eventually lifted in 1965. Plan A having failed, the Pope saw little alternative other than to take Robert Giscard to his bosom. In 1059 he recognised him as Duke of Apulia and Calabria, and also of the future Duchy of Sicily, an island at that point under Arab rule. The new duke wasted no time in seizing Bari, the last Byzantine stronghold in Italy, and then following up the implicit invitation to go and conquer Sicily from the Moors. By 1071, Giscard had control of the island, which he entrusted to his brother Roger as count. In 1130, a later pope crowned Roger's son, Roger II, as king of both the island and of southern Italy. Naples and Palermo remained yoked, for much of the rest of history. This 12th century Norman kingdom was perhaps the most brilliant in all Europe. The Palatine Chapel in Palermo, with its sublime mosaics, represents a gorgeous fusing of Norman, Arab and Byzantine cultures. Learning flourished. Salerno became Europe's leading medical school. King Roger II patronised Aladrisi, the Muslim geographer, and ancient Greek texts were recovered from the Arab world and reintroduced to Europe. Tough Norman knights, their long blonde locks remembered to this day in Sicilian puppetry, ensured reasonable stability and added Malta to the domain. In these dealings with the Eastern Church and the Normans, the medieval papacy revealed its perennial strengths and weaknesses. Great spiritual authority, uh, and even greater pretensions, hampered or nullified by lack of muscle. This deficit was, of course, meant to be made good by the emperor. Since Charlemagne, Pope and emperor were in theory the twin swords of Latin Christendom, providing respectively spiritual and temporal leadership. It would have been easier to manage the relationship as a true partnership had clear demarcation of these two roles been possible. But, of course, it never was as apostolic successor to St Peter. Invested by Christ himself with the power to bind and loose, no pope could ever disclaim ultimate authority over the emperor, though he might choose to be tactful about it. What else, after all, did papal coronation of the empress signify? At the same time, no emperor could renounce all interest in ecclesiastical affairs when a significant number of his feudal lords were princes of the church when indeed three of the seven electors who chose the emperor were archbishops. 
At this point, I feel I can no longer put off a more general look at the Holy Roman Empire. The institution is, after all, both so integral to Europe's history over successive centuries, and so unique, not to say weird. Voltaire, the 18th-century French writer, famously dismissed it as neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, and you can see his point. The pretensions of Frankish and Saxon warlords to the mantle of the Caesars seems incongruous, as does the claim to holiness. Uh, This part of the title was added by the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa in the 12th century in the context of his effort to assert himself over the Pope. And Voltaire had grounds for mocking empire, too. This was never an empire of the kind that Hadrian, or Peter the Great, or Napoleon would have recognised. In the first place, it was oddly democratic. The Holy Roman Emperor was elected by his peers. Over time, the Electoral College became accepted to number seven. Three archbishops, Mainz, Cologne and Trier, and four leading secular princes the King of Bohemia, the Duke of Saxony, the Count Palatine of the Rhine, and the Margrave, or or Marcher Lord, of Brandenburg. The arrangement was eventually formalised in 1356, confirming the principle of majority voting, and learning from the fiascos into which some papal conclaves had degenerated, giving the electors 30 days to make up their minds before they were put on a regime of bread and water. Elections were no empty form. Until the Habsburgs finally got their arm lock on the job, the choice of emperor migrated around a dozen different noble families, albeit that several of them managed to retain the title long enough to establish brief dynasties. The empire also prided itself on other characteristics associated with effective democracy, such as freedom of expression, look at what Martin Luther got away with, and the rule of law an imperial reform package introduced in 1495, the Emperor Maximilian again, included the setting up of a Supreme Court, accessible even to commoners, and the outlawing of feuds as a legitimate means of settling disputes. This, and the accompanying declaration of a public peace, which all princes swore to uphold, was a radical departure for a medieval society. After all, what were the knightly classes for, if not dispensing violence? So observance was patchy at best, and in the absence of any central power to enforce, dependent on negotiation and consensus. But the staying power of the later Holy Roman Empire depended largely on its sense of itself as a community of law, and as a legal and political hierarchy within which all could find their rights guaranteed. For an empire, the Holy Roman Empire was also strikingly decentralised or devolved. There was no imperial standing army and no regular imperial taxes. To mobilise the resources for collective action, the emperor had to apply on each occasion to his vassals. In the absence even of a capital city, this initially meant the summoning of an ad hoc assembly or diet. Those entitled to attend comprised all princes, secular and church, as well as the magistrates of free cities, whose legal and political relationship was directly with the emperor. Over time, their numbers grew, as emperors handed out jurisdictions and tracts of crown land to buy support, so that by the early 16th century, over 400 fiefs and cities. 
to be exact, seven electors, 134 ecclesiastical princes, 194 secular lords and 86 cities were eligible to participate in the Reichstag, as the Imperial Assembly was called. After the Thirty Years' War, the system was rebooted and some 300 Reichstag members found themselves permanently in session in one place, Regensburg in Bavaria. All the various different vassals that the Emperor had different bundles of rights and obligations, as well, of course, as their own dependent hierarchies of vassals. But most enjoyed a striking measure of autonomy, maintaining armies, this went for the bishops too, raising taxes, maintaining the peace and striking their own coins, though with the Emperor's head on one side. At one point, some 180 different currencies were in circulation. Add in the fact that the landholdings of individual princes were often widely scattered, reflecting different grants and acquisitions and the vagaries of inheritance law, and the Holy Roman Empire emerges as less an empire than an extraordinary geographical patchwork allied to an ever-changing decentralised hierarchy. Throughout its history, the empire was managed as much by moral authority, debate and consensus as by the exercise of power. Empires typically involve a master race, into which peripheral folk aspire to assimilate. But here again the Holy Roman Empire breaks the rules in its striking diversity, and its ready accommodation of multiple identities. The Bohemian king was an elector. At different times it was run out of Vienna and Prague, at one point indeed even from Palermo. As well as being king of the Germans, the emperor claimed the throne of Italy, and for the first half of the empire's existence, of Burgundy too. The four official languages, Latin, German, Czech and Italian, had equal status. And after Martin Luther launched his historic assault on church corruption in 1517, the empire was religiously diverse too. Luther set off an earthquake with the main fault line running east-west across the empire's German heartland. So the eventual ghastly bloodletting of the Thirty Years' War was perhaps unavoidable. What is more surprising is how the empire's flexible structures managed to absorb the early shocks of Luther's revolution without collapsing. Somehow it held together for over a century, even while France and the Low Countries were plunged into grim confessional civil wars. A key compromise was struck at Augsburg in 1555, with individual princes free to determine whether their territory was Catholic or Lutheran. The Westphalia Settlement of 1548, which ended the Thirty Years' War, permanently specified the faith of the territories themselves. Either way, significant religious minorities were found everywhere, with their rights guaranteed by law. With its loose, devolved structures, its diversity, its preference for consensus and negotiation over enforcements, and its sense of itself as a community of law, the Holy Roman Empire is inevitably compared with the European Union. A principal difference, of course, is that the empire was eventually killed off by the nation-state, whilst the EU is struggling to recapture the sense and practice of pan-European cooperation after the horrors unleashed by the nation-state in the 20th century. Of course, neither empire nor EU was or is optimised for efficiency. The American founding fathers, urging a 
more effective American Union, castigated the feebleness of the Holy Roman Empire's nerveless body. But this very inability to pull itself together for collective action was what made the empire such a force for stability in European history. Too ramshackle to dominate, it was nonetheless too big to be dominated, and served over the centuries to hold back pressures from the East, from Magyars to Ottomans and Russians, whilst constraining the power of France to the West. No wonder Voltaire was so snippy about it or that the Emperor Napoleon saw that it had to go. But let us return to the late 11th century, when the happy notion of joint leadership of Western Christendom by Pope and Emperor was colliding with the basic incoherence in the power dynamics between the two offices. The Pope was weak, he controlled directly only a thin sliver of central Italy from Rome up to Ravenna, sandwiched between Arabs, Byzantines, and then Normans to the south, and an emperor periodically asserting his rights as king of Italy in the Lombard north. But the Pope was also strong. His church, through its pan-European network of sees, abbeys, and monastic orders, controlled vast resources which emperors and kings needed to draw on to sustain their military and political power. In such ambiguous circumstances, management of the Pope-Emperor relationship required mutual forbearance and diplomacy, which was seldom forthcoming. That the Pope should have moved in 1059 to reform the system of papal election, taking the choice out of the hands of the leading Roman families and passing it to the cardinal bishops, was hard to argue with. The previous arrangement had produced in 1046 three simultaneous papal pretenders, a shambles which had required the emperor's intervention to resolve. Uh, that the Pope should have made this key change without consulting the emperor, or providing him with even an advisory role in the new process, looked like a deliberate papal snub, especially when taken with the Pope's near-simultaneous embrace of Robert Giscard. Things went downhill fast going into freefall with the election as Pope in 1073 of a Tuscan monk called Hildebrand, who took the papal name of Gregory VII. A tough-minded radical, he wasted no time in calling for church reform, especially the abolition of simony, the purchase of church offices. Who could possibly object to that? Well, those who sold them. That is, secular lords and monarchs who found this a convenient way both to control and to extract value from the great church fiefdoms. Feels a bit like the modern practice of selling to, say, a, a transport operator, the franchise to run a train service. A conciliator might have pitched the attack on simony as putting the church's house in order. Gregory chose to underline it with a slew of pronouncements on papal infallibility, church supremacy, and the Pope's exclusive right to appoint bishops, not to mention his right to depose emperors. Conflict with the Emperor Henry IV was inevitable, and duly crystallised over the filling of the vacant archbishopric of Milan. The power struggle between Pope and Emperor is known as the investiture conflict, since the right to appoint and invest popes lay at its heart. Threats and final demands flew back and forth across the Alps, until the German bishops, 
at Henry's bidding, excommunicated the Pope. Naturally, he anathematized them right back and mobilized support from a number of Saxon princes. The Saxon dynasty of the Emperor Otto had died out and been succeeded early in the millennium by the Salians, who were Rhinelanders. When the Saxon princes elected an anti-Caesar, or rival emperor, Henry found himself in real trouble, and decided that swift and abject submission to the Pope was the wisest course. There followed the famous Walk to Canossa. Henry sought out Gregory at this Apennine castle in January 1077, and stood outside for three days, barefoot in the snow, until the Pope finally accepted his penitence and lifted his excommunication. This was all very dramatic, but hardly decisive. It seems safe to assume that Henry went home in a foul mood. Certainly the Saxon princes found themselves sharply brought back into line. Gregory, in their defence, excommunicated and deposed Henry a second time. The imperial bishops reciprocated and elected an antipope to perform Henry's long-awaited papal coronation. Henry then leads an army into Italy and lays siege to Rome. Gregory takes refuge in the Castel St. Angelo. Robert Giscard hastens to his rescue, leading a force of mercenary Saracens who take the opportunity to sack the city. Gregory dies in exile, and when Henry dies in 1106, he is still excommunicate. As we shall see in due course, this sort of stuff will intermittently carry on for at least another couple of centuries, but in the short term, the papacy probably felt they had come off the better. Certainly, when a decade later, the Byzantine Emperor Alexius addressed an urgent appeal to the West for help against the latest marauders from the East, it was the Pope and not the Emperor who took up the challenge of mobilising a joint response by Western Christendom. But that, of course, is the story of the Crusades and is the stuff of the next episode, which I hope you will join me for.